Father, we bless your holy name for your word that is, that is holy, it is set apart, it is from your hand, Lord. We thank you for being merciful to the, the human race by giving them a written record of your mind and your will and showing us who you are and giving us a revelation of the good news of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so, Lord, we, we bow before your word. We do not want to impose anything on it. We want to simply take from your word what you have communicated that it might fill us, Lord, with knowledge and help us to walk in your ways. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, church, let's go ahead and read Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and be made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Sometimes you hear of major league baseball players who have to be sent down to the minor leagues. And I imagine that must be very humbling, humiliating, embarrassing, as well as you're taking a pay cut, you're going down to this small stadium where there's far less people, you've once been used to the adulation and the praise of the great crowds, and now you're in this small stadium going fairly unnoticed. So it can be humbling to be sent down. And I thought of that in relationship to somebody else who was sent down from heaven to earth, Jesus Christ, who was humbled, who humbled himself to come from heaven to earth. In heaven he possessed all glory and all majesty and all honor. He was worshipped by the angels, worshipped by the spirits of just men made perfect, and yet he left it, came down to earth, and selflessly gave himself for God's people. And I think in Jesus Christ we have the greatest model of selfless humility that ever was or ever will be. I've entitled this message, Jesus, the ultimate model of selfless humility. Because that's what I believe is the, the core of what Paul is describing for us here in Philippians 2, 1 through 11. In this passage, we're going to see three things. Exhortations to selfless humility, that's verses 1 to 5. Paul gives us three exhortations to selfless humility. Number two, an example of selfless humility, and that's Jesus Christ, 
Paul portrays him as our inspiration so that we would follow in his steps. That's verses 6 through 8. And then finally, the exaltation after selfless humility. That's what God did to Jesus as a reward for his obedience and sufferings. He exalted him. That's verses 9 through 11. So we have exhortations, an example, and then the exaltation to look at this morning. So let's take a look. First of all, exhortations to selfless humility. So Paul begins in verses 1 to 4, and he says, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion. Now, last week we talked about this. This is not the if of doubt. This is the if of argument. Many times a Bible writer will use the word if, not to suppose that there's some doubt about, well, maybe there's some encouragement in Christ, and maybe there's not. I wonder which it is. That's not what he's getting at. You, you could change the word if to the word since, and you'd have a, a good paraphrase. Therefore, since there is encouragement in Christ, since there is consolation of love, God's love comforts us, since there is fellowship of the Spirit that we have together, since there is affection and compassion that we share together in the body of Christ, since all that is true, Paul says, make my joy complete by doing this, this, and this. Well, what are those things? Being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Now, if you had to boil down verse 2, what's the central idea? Notice the unity. Unity is the central idea. Same mind, same love. The word same tells you. He's talking about unity. United in spirit, intent on one single purpose. So Paul is driving at the unity of the body. And he's saying, take advantage of the resources that you have in Christ, which are encouragement, consolation, which is another word for comfort, the comfort of God's love, encouragement in Christ, affection and compassion, and fellowship of the Spirit. Take advantage of those resources, and if you do, it'll drive you towards the unity of the body. You're going to end up with the same mind, the same love, united together in one spirit, and you'll all be intent on one purpose. Now, the problem with all of this, all of that's wonderful, but there is a problem. And, and the problem is that we are all selfish and prideful by nature. Every single human being in this world is born into the world with these inbred weaknesses. We tend towards selfishness, don't we? Self-centered, and we tend towards lifting ourselves up. That's pride. So pride and selfishness are, are, are born into the human being at the moment of conception. And they tend towards division in the church rather than unity. And Paul is going to attack selfishness and pride in this passage by showing us that Jesus Christ was not selfish, he was selfless. Jesus Christ was not proud, he was humble. And that we are called to have his mind, his attitude in ourselves, and walk in his steps so that unity will be the result of the church. 
So in order to enjoy the spiritual unity that we have, we've got to make war on these particular sins, selfishness and pride. And so exhortation number one, pursue humility. Look at verse three. Do nothing from empty conceit. I'm passing over the first one for now. Do nothing from empty conceit. Now the King James translates this as vain glory. Vain meaning empty. Glory is another word for conceit. He's talking about pride. Do nothing from vain glory, seeking the glory of men, which is empty and vain and futile. Do nothing from empty conceit or vain glory. Instead, he says, with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than yourself. So shun vain glory. Shun empty conceit. You know, we, we know what conceit is. We talk about people who are conceited. Yeah. They're always so great in their own eyes. They're lifting themselves up, bragging about this, bragging about that. He says, don't be like that. That's not the way of the Christian. Don't be a brag braggart. <laughs> Instead, do nothing out of this empty conceit, but with humility of mind. That's what the Christian is to strive for. Humility. Voluntarily stooping, lowering yourself, taking the low place rather than insisting on the high place. With humility of mind, regard all the rest of the people within the church as more important than you. Now, how, how many of us do that and do it well? And we regard everybody else as more important than myself. Their needs are more important than mine. Their desires are more important than my desires. I am to be a servant to the rest of the body. I am to seek to serve them. So the first virtue which Paul exhorts us to go after is humility. It's the opposite of pride. It's to voluntarily take the low place instead of insisting on the high place. It is to stoop to serve rather than climb in order to be served. Okay, exhortation number two, pursue selflessness. He says, do nothing from selfishness. Do nothing from selfishness. And then verse 4, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Now, interestingly, the word merely in the New American Standard was not in the original. It was added by the translators. It's not there. They added it because to them it made more sense than to leave it out. But this is how Paul originally wrote it. Do not look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Now, of course, we have to look out for our own personal interests or else we'll die. <laughs> we have to provide food. There are certain interests that we've got to be cognizant of, right? But Paul is really saying, I, I want you to be looking out for other people, not just yourself all the time. We are naturally self-centered, and he said you, you need to make war with this self-centered spirit and think of other people around you. Now, the book of Philippians has been called the joy epistle. And that's because the word joy or rejoice comes up 16 times in this letter. And it's only got four chapters. So an average of four times every chapter, Paul's talking about joy. It comes up over and over and over and over throughout this epistle. And someone has pointed out that the way to joy is just by spelling the letters J-O-Y, Jesus, others, you. And I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. Jesus comes first. 
others come second. You come last. At least that's the way it's supposed to be. And when we pursue Jesus and we pursuing serving others, joy is the natural byproduct of that. When you insist on serving yourself first and lifting yourself up and being self-centered, you're going to lack joy in your life. Because joy comes from a life of service. That's exhortation number two. Pursue selflessness. Exhortation number one, pursue humility. And then look at number three. Pursue the mind of Christ. That comes out in verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus. Well, the reason I say pursue the mind of Christ is because the Greek word for attitude here is the word for mind. It's the very same word we have in verse 3 where it says, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourself. It's the very same Greek word in verse 2 where he says maintaining, or I'm sorry, by being of the same mind. So he uses the same word in, in verse 2, same mind. Verse 3, humility of mind. But then he switches it up in verse 5, and our translators don't translate it as mind, but let's do that. Verse 5, have this mind in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Have this mind, the mind of Christ. What's the mind of Christ? The mind of Christ is a selfless, humble mind. We know that because Paul goes on to tell us in verses 6 through 8 all about the mind of Christ. Jesus, although he existed in the form of God, form of God didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but the mind of Christ caused him to empty himself it caused him to take the form of a bondservant. It caused him to be made in the likeness of men. It caused him to be found in appearance as a man. It caused him to humble himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's the mind of Christ right there. It's a mind that's willing to put others first. It's a mind that's willing to stoop and serve and put others before himself. To regard others as more important than himself. So those are Paul's three exhortations. Christians, church, and we can just say bridge, because we, these come to us today in 2021, the same as they did in the first century. Pursue humility, pursue selflessness, and pursue the mind of Christ. But in order to give us a hunger and a desire to embody humility and selflessness, Paul points us to the ultimate model of humility and selflessness in verses 6 through 8. He's not content with just saying, do this. He's saying, do this, but let me show you the, the ultimate perfect example of that. It's your Savior. Look at Jesus. Look at His humility. Look at His selflessness. And follow in His steps. And that's what He's doing in verse 6, 7, and 8. Now, when we come to verses 6 through 8, we are treading on holy ground. We come to some of the deepest and richest doctrine and theology in the New Testament, even though it is compressed together and compacted. It is wonderfully deep. I don't think, I'm not going to be able to fully explain it because I don't fully understand it. I can do my best this morning, but you're going to have to dig yourself and meditate yourself on these words. And what I want you to see is Paul did not write verses 6 through 11 
in order to teach great doctrine and theology. Paul did this to provide a motive and an inspiration for Christians to manifest humility and selflessness in their daily lives. Paul's wanting Christians to be humble and he's wanting to put he's wanting Christians to put others before themselves and so in order to help them do that he gives the example of Jesus. So the example of Christ is just to help us be humble and to be selfless so that we have no division in the body but we are united together as one. Do you, do you see how the context is flowing? I hope so. I hope you see that. So Paul's concern is not primarily theological, it's pastoral and it's ethical. Okay, let's move on now to number two, the example of selfless humility, verses six through eight. And I'm just going to take this phrase by phrase. Who, although he existed in the form of God, Jesus began in the highest conceivable place he existed from all eternity as God. That's what verse 6 is telling us. If you ever have someone who doubts the deity of Christ, take him to Philippians 2 verse 6, which says, He existed in the form of God. How, how much more clear can God be than to tell us, Jesus existed in the form of God. And this is talking about before His incarnation. This is talking about from all eternity, he existed in the form of God. And what Paul is going to show us is that he, Jesus started out in the highest conceivable place, and he took these descents, like the rungs of a ladder. He's descending lower and lower and lower, humbling himself down further and further to the lowest place before then God exalts him back to where he was before. He starts in glory, he descends to the lowest place, and God exalts him back to glory. That's the picture of verses 6 through 11. And he says, although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Let's meditate on that phrase, equality with God. That tells us that Jesus is equal with God. He's not... Subordinate. He's not less than the Father in terms of his, his nature. In terms of his nature, he is the same nature as God the Father. They, are, they both consist of deity, equal with God. And Jesus has always been equal with God. So, if a Jehovah's Witness is, comes up and he tells you, well... What I believe is that Jesus is the first and greatest creation of God, which is what they do believe. He's the first and greatest creation of God. Is a being that is created by God, is that being equal with God? Absolutely not. It's infinitely lower because it had no existence until this being here gave it existence. It cannot be equal with the one that gave it existence. So this is another passage that helps us to see that if you assign Jesus any lower status than God, you're, you're involved in heresy at that point. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Hebrews 1.3 says, Jesus is the radiance of the Father's glory and the exact representation of his nature. Not just close, it's the exact one. 
the exact representation. Colossians 1.15 says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So we can't see God, Jesus is his image. If you look at Jesus, you see what God is like. Or Colossians 2.9, in Jesus all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Not some of the fullness of deity or half of the fullness of deity, all of the fullness of God dwells in Jesus in bodily form. Jesus said to his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So, equality with God. But what happened? It says that he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, meaning clutched onto, held onto at all costs. Jesus was willing to let go and to take a low place. When Jesus walked the earth, he was willing to take a subordinate role, taking directives from his Father, being the servant of his Father, always doing the will of the Father. So Jesus didn't cling to his rights and privileges as God. As God, Jesus had the right and the privilege to be worshipped by all of the creatures that he'd ever made. And that's what was happening in heaven before he came to earth. He was being served by the angels, by the spirits of just men made perfect who are already there in glory. He was being served, worshipped. He, he experienced the glory and the majesty of that place, but he left it behind. He didn't clutch it and say, I've got to retain this position. He let it go, and he was willing to come to earth and experience a whole different dimension of reality on the earth. Now here we come to a, a, a difficult concept. It says, but he emptied himself. And this is the kenosis. It means self-emptying. And people have grappled for centuries trying to describe what does that mean, that he emptied himself. One school of thought says that Jesus emptied himself of his divinity while he walked the earth, so that he would be exactly like us and have to depend upon God for everything that he did. And he's an actual model, an actual example for us. We have to depend on the Holy Spirit just like Jesus did. There's no difference between him and us. Um, and I, I do not believe that's what he means here. There are some who actually say he discarded his deity while he walked the earth. He retained, he got it back after he was raised from the dead, but while he was on the earth, it was just like you or me. Well, that can't be true, because while he was on the earth, he said, before Abraham was born, I am. He who has seen me right now has seen the Father. So he's not going to be God after he's raised from the dead. He is God while he's on the earth. His deity never left him. In fact, it's ridiculous to think that his deity could be discarded, right? I mean, if he was God from all eternity... How can he cease to be God without ceasing to exist? And God can't cease to exist, so God can't cease to be God. If, God. if Jesus has been God at one point, he still is God, and he always will be God, unless he somehow just ceases to exist, which is impossible for God. Okay, so if it doesn't mean that he emptied himself of his deity, what does it mean? I'll tell you what I believe it means, and you're going to have to think this through for yourself. I think the context tells us what it means to empty himself. 
He goes on to tell us what it means to empty himself. It means to take the form of a bondservant. It means to be made in the likeness of men. It means to be found in the appearance as a man. And it means to become obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. To empty himself did not mean subtraction, like part of him was eliminated. His deity goes away. That's not what it means. It means addition. A human nature was added to his divine nature. By becoming man, he's emptying himself of his rights and privileges to be worshipped and served as God by all the heavenly host. He's giving that up. He's becoming a man now, and he's walking the earth with a, a human and divine nature joined together as one, which is something that we can't understand because we've never experienced anything like that, right? You're not... You don't have a divine nature. All you've got is a human nature. So we, we can't even fathom what it would be like for a person to have two natures in one. But that's what the Bible teaches about Jesus. And that's why sometimes we call Jesus the God-man. Because he's truly God and truly man, but he's not two persons. He's one person. So he emptied himself. He did that by taking the form of a bondservant. So he existed from eternity in the form of God. Now he takes the form of a bondservant. From the majesty and glory of Almighty God to a slave. You, you can start to see his descent. The plunge downwards. God, now he's a servant. Jesus didn't come to earth to be waited on and served by man. He came to earth to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He says in Luke 22:27, I am among you as one who serves. Isaiah 52:13 calls Jesus God's servant. So Jesus was receiving orders from his father while he was on the earth, and he was executing those orders. He was being obedient to his father in everything that he did. And Paul goes on now, and he says, and being made in the likeness of men. It was a huge stoop for the infinite, immortal God to be made in the likeness of men. I mean, think about it. The glory of the almighty creator who has no beginning and no end. And now all of a sudden, he, he's manifested as a human being walking on the earth. What a, what, a, what a plunge for the infinite God now to be a man, right? It's, it's crazy to consider that. But notice it says, he was made in the likeness of men. That tells us that he wasn't exactly like all other men. There were very definite points of correspondence between Jesus and all other men, but he wasn't exactly like all other men because Jesus did not have a sin nature. Jesus never committed sin. He's not like all other men in that regard, right? All of us are sinners by nature and sinners by choice, every single one of us. And furthermore, he's not like all men because he has a divine nature, and we don't. But apart from that, Jesus is a true man. Hebrews says he was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. So he was tempted like us. He experienced hunger, thirst, pain, suffering. He died like all of us will die. He, he was a true, true man. 
So he took the form of a bondservant. He was made in the likeness of men. And then he was found in appearance as a man. Let me just go back, though, to this, this likeness of men and just expand a little bit there. He was the self-sufficient creator. And the self-sufficient creator became a baby. <laughs> Think about this. Dependent upon his mother for everything. Isn't that wild to consider that? Absolutely dependent upon Mary to feed him, to clothe him, to take care of him. Now, for an angel to be cast down from heaven and turned into a worm. Let's just consider that scenario. The greatest archangel to be turned into a worm. You think, wow, man, that is super humbling for that angel to be turned into a worm. But the angel was a creature before, and when he's turned into a worm, he's still a creature. So there's a finite distance between an archangel and a worm. Finite, because they're both creatures. But there's an infinite distance between God and that highest archangel, because the archangel is created by God. And God is not created by anyone. God gave existence to the archangel. There's an infinite distance between God and the greatest of everything that he's made, far greater than from an archangel to be turned into a worm, you see. So Jesus Christ comes and clothes himself in human flesh. In fact, Charles Wesley puts it in the great Christmas hymn, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. And then it says, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. He was found in appearance as a man. You looked at him, you're looking at a man. But he didn't just stay in that position. It says, he humbled himself even further. He had humbled himself as much as he possibly could, but he goes even further. The incarnation was just the beginning of his humiliation. He's going to continue to descend that ladder even further. And how does he do it? By becoming obedient to the point of death. That's how. And that's as low as he can go. He can't go any, any lower than this. To become obedient to the point of death. Because when he submits himself to death, he is laying aside every right and privilege that he has and forfeiting all of them and giving himself up to the Father and his will. And it wasn't just any death. It was even death on a cross, which was the lowest of all kinds of death because crucifixion was the most shameful form of death. The person being executed was stripped naked. We have the pictures of Jesus with a loincloth. He didn't have a loincloth. They were stripped naked, put up on that cross for all the gawking eyes of the crowd to see. His crime was written above his head, and it was written in three languages so everybody could read it, Latin, Hebrew, and Greek, the king of the Jews. That was his crime, as though that was a real crime, you know. But that's what it was. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man acquainted with sorrows and grief. He was arrested for a crime he never committed, trumped up charges in that kangaroo court that the Religious leaders held the night trying desperately to come up with something that they could stick so that they could have him killed because he wanted him out of, out of their way. 
He was just too much of a threat to them. People spat in his face. They beat him on his head. The soldiers took him and clothed him like a mock king to make fun of him, make sport of him. They took that purple robe and they put it across him. Oh, he, he says he's a king. Let's make him look like a king. So they put this purple robe on him. They wove a, a crown with thorns, placed it on his head. So there's our king. They bowed down to him as though this is a great big joke. Some people were beating him on the head with a reed while they were doing that. This is, this is God, folks that people are abusing like this. This is God. They treated him as a common criminal. They had him scourged until he was so weak that he couldn't even carry the cross anymore. They had to give that to Simon to carry it just so that he could make it on the way up to the top of Golgotha. He was crucified between two other thieves. One of his disciples betrayed him, Judas, Another disciple denied him, Peter. All of the rest forsook him. And then he bore the curse of God's holy fury against our sins and offenses. Alone. Even the Father turned his face away while the Son of God bore the fury of God's wrath against evil and sin and wickedness. Jesus absorbing all that. Now we would have thought that if someone were to come into this world to destroy the works of the devil and knock off our spiritual chains and release us from our prison doors, we would get down and kiss the ground that he walks on and shout hallelujahs and praises. But instead of doing that, they hated him, they despised him, they reproached him, and they crucified him. You can't go any lower than that. Jesus is at the bottom when we get to this verse, even death on a cross. Not only has God condescended to become a man, but then he was beaten, mocked, scourged, stripped, naked, crucified between two thieves, made the sacrifice which absorbs God's holy wrath. But it's at this point that everything's about to change because verse 9 is right on its way. And we come to the exaltation after selfless humility. Notice verse 9. For this reason also, for this reason also, for the reason we just read about, for the reason that Jesus was willing to humble himself to such a degrading and shameful and horrifying death because he was willing to obey his Father for, as a reward for his sufferings and obedience. God is going to do something for his Son. What is it? God highly exalted him. Now in verses 6 through 8, Jesus has been doing everything. Jesus emptied himself. Jesus took the form of a bondservant. Jesus is made in the likeness of men. Jesus is found in appearance as a man. Jesus humbled himself. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus is doing everything in these verses. Now in verses 9 through 11, the Father is going to do everything. The Father is going to exalt him. The Father is going to bestow on him the name which is above every name. So let's take a look at that. God highly exalted him. Because Jesus did the Father's will, God the Father highly exalted him. Now this would include God raising him from the dead, God exalting him to heaven to sit down at his right hand. It would include God giving him all authority in heaven and on earth. 
exalting him far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that is named, making him the judge of all men and assigning all men their eternal destinies. That's all included in this phrase, God highly exalted him. In fact, Jesus prayed in John 17, 5, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And God answered that prayer. God answered it. Not only did God highly exalt him, but God bestowed on him the name which is above every name. Jesus didn't seek a name for himself, but God gave him a name. But what is the name? God bestowed on him the name which is above every name. Now there's two options for what that name is. If you keep reading, it says, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. So one option is the name that God gave him is the name Jesus. But there's a problem with that view. The problem is that God gave him the name Jesus at his birth, but verse 10 is describing a name that is given to him upon his crucifixion and resurrection. It's after his death, right? For this reason, because God or because Jesus humbled himself unto death, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name. So it seems like this is a consequence of his obedience unto death that he gives him this name. He's already given him the name of Jesus. So if it's not the name of Jesus, what is it? I think it's verse 11, the very end of this, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I think that's the name that was bestowed on him as a result of his sufferings and death. You see, the Greek word for Lord is it's kurios. And whenever you go to the Old Testament and see the holy name of God, Jehovah or Yahweh, we don't really know how to pronounce that word. It's so sacred that the Jews wouldn't even say it. There are just four, four consonants they would put together. But anyway, wherever you find that in the Old Testament, and then you find a Greek word to translate that, they use the word kurios, or Lord. So I believe that what Paul is saying is that because Jesus was obedient unto the death of the cross, God bestowed on him the name Lord, Jehovah, Yahweh. He identifies Jesus with the true and living God, the Creator, the Almighty. And truly, Lord would be the name which is above every other name, because it's the name of God. It's the name for Jehovah. While Jesus walked the earth, he was Jehovah, but he was Jehovah incognito, like in, almost in disguise. People didn't know. They looked at him and they didn't know. God visited us. They might go their whole lives looking at Jesus and never know that's God that visited this planet to save it. Most were blinded to the true identity of Jesus Christ, but now the Father is openly manifesting the true identity of Jesus before the entire universe by bestowing this special name upon him, Lord, Lord of all, Jehovah over all. And then he says, so that, the reason he does give him this name is so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven, 
Well, who's in heaven? Angels. And spirits of men that have already been saved and gone to be with God. So all those in heaven, their knees are going to bow. And they're going to bow willingly and joyfully and excitedly. Right? Not only them, but those on earth. That would include all of us, all people. Now, some people are not going to bow their knee willingly. This is talking about a time when they, they would be forced and compelled to bow their knee to the true identity of Jesus Christ. This is talking about the final judgment when all people, not only angels in heaven, but all men will bow. And not only that, but then he says, and under the earth. I take that as a reference to demons, Satan and the demon world. So all spirits, all people everywhere, every creature that God has made is going to bow down and make a confession with their mouth, Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, this doesn't mean that every creature is going to be saved. Because many of them will not make this confession willingly. They're going to be compelled to make this. They're not going to bow their knee willingly. They're going to be compelled to do so by the overpowering authority of the Lord Jesus Christ on this final day. They'll have to. Lost men will still be lost, but they're going to be forced to own Jesus for who he is. They might blaspheme him now. They might call him all kinds of swear words. They might ignore him, neglect him, but there'll be none of that on Judgment Day. So notice what we have here. We have Christ in his pre-existent glory. That's how it starts out. Then we have him humbling himself to become man, then a bondservant, then going to the very death of the cross. And then we have him exalted to heaven. Glory again, with the highest name in all the universe, so we start with glory, we have humiliation, and then we end with glory. Now let's draw down some conclusions. Believers, let's talk to believers. Look at Jesus and behold your God. He held the supreme position in all the universe, God overall. What did he do with that position? Did he selfishly cling to his rights? Was he filled with empty conceit? Did he only concern himself with his own personal interests? He gave up his rights and became a servant. He condescended to assume human nature. He went further and humbled himself to the point of a cursed, shameful, painful death. And then how did the father respond? He highly exalted him to the highest place again. Now what does this mean for us? We are called to follow in the steps of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember that this whole passage was written to the Philippians to help them dwell together in unity. That's how he starts out. He wants them to be of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. And so he begins to exhort them to that end. And then he points to Jesus as the ultimate example so they can follow him, have his mind in themselves. That's going to create this blessed and wonderful unity within the church. So because the church is in danger of division, Paul gives them this long uh, section where he extols Jesus Christ. Now go back to verse 5. Have this mind in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. That's what God wants you to do this morning. 
He wants you to have the same mind that was in Christ Jesus. We have to refuse to do things from selfishness or empty conceit. We've got to refuse to merely look out for our own personal interests. And boy, that's tempting to do, isn't it? Because we're so self-absorbed anyway. We're always thinking, I mean, we probably think about ourselves a thousand times more than we think of somebody else. And that's terrible. That's... But we need to look at the example of Christ over and over and over. Every day we've got to keep looking at him and looking at the kind of Savior he is and asking the Lord to make us like our Savior. We've got to be willing to sink lower and lower, like he did. But as we do, we're going to find that by sinking, we actually rise. The way up is down in the kingdom. It's not to fight and claw your way to the top. It's to sink lower, and then God exalts you. Just like God exalted Jesus. The Bible tells us in 1 Peter 5, 6, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. This lifetime is not the proper time, but there's coming a day when the Lord will exalt those who have humbled themselves in this lifetime. We've taken the role of the servant. We've taken the low place voluntarily like our Lord did. We'll leave it up to the Lord at what he wants to do. And the Lord has promised he will exalt us at the proper time. The Lord one day is going to raise us from the dead. He's going to make manifest that we are the children of God before a watching world on judgment day. We are going to shine like the sun in the kingdom of our Father. We're going to be glorified together with Christ. We're going to sit down with him on his throne. And we are going to be his majestic bride and rule and reign with him forever and ever. He's going to exalt us. But that's not our business at this point. We are not to seek after our own self-exaltation. We're to leave that to the Lord. And the Lord will do a good job of it. So the cross precedes the crown, humbling precedes exaltation. And so here's the question. How can we regard one another as more important than ourselves? How do we do this? Maybe it's by being willing to be inconvenienced by somebody else. That's taking the low place, isn't it? Maybe it's by taking on the tasks that nobody else wants. You're willing to take the dirty, foul, stinky, scrungy job nobody else wants to do. I'll just tell you a little story of a, a good example of this. In 2004, our son Josiah died. And the week after that, our church family came over and served us every day. And there was a time when... Who threw up, Debbie? The dog? Okay, a person threw up. There was one guy there. He says, I'm on it. And he ran in there, and he personally cleaned up this vomit from off the floor. And I thought, that's the heart of a servant right there. He took the job nobody in their right mind would ever want to do. And it wasn't even someone related to him. It wasn't his child. They didn't even come to our church. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know. That just popped into my head just now as I was talking to you. Maybe it's by looking for ways that you can serve somebody else rather than waiting for others to come up and serve you. That's the spirit of Jesus Christ. How can I be a servant? So when you're thinking about church, you're, you're driving to church on Sunday morning, just throw up a silent prayer, Lord, help me to be a servant today. Show me how I can serve somebody today in the body. 
And we need to live this out in our home, the hardest place in the world to do it. Not only there, we need to live this out in our workplace. Your coworkers. And for me, it's going to be my employees. How can I be a servant to my employees? We need to live this out in our neighborhood. If we know people around us are sick or hurting, are we doing anything to serve our neighbors? We need to live this out, most importantly, in the church of Jesus Christ, right here amongst our brothers and sisters. Because that's what Paul, that's the context of which Paul is talking about in Philippians 2. So may God give us grace to do that, to follow in the steps of Jesus. Now, this also has something to say to non believers. In case someone here is not a genuine child of God, there's something here for you too. And that is that there's coming a day when God is going to cause every knee to bow, including yours, and he's going to cause every single tongue to confess, including yours, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Why not do that now, voluntarily, before it's too late? There's still a door of mercy, but the door is closing. At some point, it's going to be closed forever. And you might bang and wrap your knuckles on that door, but God is going to say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. There'll be a day when you may want to get in, and it'll be too late to get in. So now is the day of salvation. Amen. On Noah's Ark. Let me in, let me in. And the floods came, and God had sealed the door shut. It wasn't, there was no more opportunities for people to get on the Ark. And there's coming a day when there's no more opportunities to get into Christ. So if you're not saved, and anybody listening on the radio, or if you're watching this video somehow, you found our website and you're not saved, come to Jesus Christ. Amen. Repent. Submit yourself to your Lord. Begin to follow Him in faith and repentance. And the Lord will receive you. The Lord will bestow on you everlasting life. But you've got to humble yourself and repent and give Him your life. Let's pray. Lord, do this gracious work in these saints here today. Oh God, what a tall order it is to follow in the steps of Jesus. Lord, you know how proudful we are. You know how selfish we are, Lord. We don't want to be this way. Lord, would you please change us? Help us to think of others more often than we do, Lord. Help us to truly consider others more important than ourselves and to truly be servants. We, we ask for the Holy Spirit to transform us, to be like Jesus Christ. And we do ask, Lord, that you would bring people to know your Son. Lord, may they joyfully bow their knee and say, Jesus, you are Lord. I believe in you. I trust you. I will follow you. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.